Well, welcome everybody. Once again, it's such a privilege to be with you, albeit on your TV or laptop or cell phone screens. I trust that you'll be blessed today as we dive into God's Word together. So if you've been tracking with us, you'll know that we are in a series called Kings and Kingdoms, and we are in the book of One Kings, and so I'm excited to get to continue with that series today. But before we dive into that, I just want to share a little bit with you about what my weeks tend to look like and what I tend to do and sometimes don't do every day of my life. So in a good week, and I really hope that you can relate to this as well, it would make me feel a whole heap better. But in a good week, every morning I wake up and I set myself apart for God. I consecrate myself. I try very hard to remember and to focus on the fact that he is my king and my commander but at the same time, my very good and loving father. On a good week or in a good week, I do that every day. But on an average week, I tend to do that about 50 to 60% of the time. And in a bad week, I do that not at all. So a good day for me is a day where I consecrate myself. I remember the Lord. I set myself apart for God as a living sacrifice and my focus is on him. On a bad day or an average day, I tend to drift in and out of my responsibilities, whether it be as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a pastor, as a friend. I tend to drift in and out of those responsibilities, those God-given responsibilities, without giving it really much thought or consideration. It's just this habitual thing that I do, and I do the things that I do out of habit. And then on my worst days, well, those are days where I do none of that, but I sin as well, and I sin big time, whether it be in thought, in attitude, or in deed. And most of the time, it's all three of those. The struggle that I have and the frustrating part for me, and maybe you can relate to this, is that wasn't always the case. It's funny that it's, it's, it's only now that I'm 15 or so years into my journey with the Lord that the struggle with consistency and persistency has become a regular thing. See, it's these middle grounds. It's this, it's this in-between stage. When I first got saved, there was so much excitement, so much exuberation, so much joy, so much overflow. And that still is part of my life. But back then you could never think of, or I could never think of, or the idea of um, being inconsistent was inconceivable to me when it came to my relationship with the Lord and pursuing Him and being in prayer daily and in the Word daily. And it's funny also as I talk to, to, to older men and women in the faith who've walked a long road with the Lord and who are incredibly mature with God and who feel like they're reaching the, the end of their season with God here on earth. In that stage of life, you find people also incredibly joyful, expectant. There's this deep, rich atmosphere to their relationship with God. They're excited and there's this consistency there as well as they look forward to inheriting what it is that Jesus has as an inheritance for them. It's that middle ground though. It's that middle ground where the consistency becomes a struggle and being persistent in our holiness becomes a struggle. It's, it's in that middle ground with the regular passing of time, where the kilometers just keep passing and flowing underneath us. That becomes the most dangerous and we run the risk of, metaphorically speaking or spiritually speaking, falling asleep at the wheel. This has been a struggle in my life and if you can relate, well, that just makes me feel a whole lot better. And having said that, I don't think that this message and what God wants us to be unpacking today is only for those who feel like they're in the middle of the road with the Lord, in the sense that they've uh, walked a long time and still have a long time to go. This is for everybody. 
It's for those who've come to know Jesus and are excited and exuberant in their faith and are experiencing that first love for the first time. It's to prepare you to understand that there's a long road ahead. God doesn't, doesn't call you to a 100 or 200 meter sprint. We've just seen the Olympics. We see how fast those men and women are. God hasn't called you to a short sprint. God's called you to a long, faithful journey with him. And there are going to be times where it's difficult and we need to pay attention. Otherwise, we run the risk of falling asleep. And God is also speaking to those of us who've walked a long road and who feel like the majority of their time here on earth has, has passed them by and they're in that rich relationship with God. It's an encouragement to you to, to point out the fact that we need you. We need each other. We need your depth of experience and your rich relationship with God as an encouragement to us to hold on and to press on and to not let go and to be consistent and persistent in our faith and our pursuit of God. So that's really what the message is about today to encourage us to do that. But we're going to look at how God comes to Solomon in the middle of his reign to encourage him to do the same thing. And we're going to take things away from God's encounter with Solomon in this chapter, chapter 9 in 1 Kings, and apply it to our lives and be encouraged, hopefully. So like I said, in, in chapter 9 in 1 Kings, Solomon is right in the middle of his reign. He's just finished some major accomplishments the building of the temple, the building of his palace. And it's at this point that the Lord comes to him and appears to Solomon for the second time. The first time was right in the beginning of his reign where God says to him, ask me for anything. And Solomon asks for wisdom. Now, years later, after Solomon's achieved this great building for the Lord, God comes to him in his mercy and his faithfulness and reminds Solomon of his duties and of his call to be consistent in his godliness and his faithfulness towards the Lord to persevere, and to be consistent. So let's read together. We're going to read quite a chunk of scripture, and then we'll unpack it together. In chapter 9, from verse 1, it says this, When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all that he had desired to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you have built. By putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did. And do all I command and observe my decrees and laws. I will establish your royal th throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father when I said you shall never fail to have an, a successor on the throne of Israel. But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. At the end of 20 years during which Solomon built these two buildings, the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, King Solomon gave 20 towns in Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre, because Hiram had supplied him with all the cedar and juniper and gold. He wanted. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. Here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had attacked and captured Gezer. He had set it on fire. He killed its Canaanite inhabitants and then gave it as a wedding gift to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon rebuilt Gezer. He built up Lower Beth Horon, Baalath, and Tadmor in the desert within his land. 
as well as all his store cities and the towns for his chariots and for his horses. Whatever he desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and throughout all the territory, he ruled. There were still people left from the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These peoples were not Israelites. Solomon conscripted the descendants of all these peoples remaining in the land whom the Israelites could not exterminate to serve as slave labor as it is today. But Solomon did not make slaves of any of the Israelites. They were his fighting men, his government officials, his officers, his captains, and the commanders of his chariots and charioteers. Three times a year, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar he had built for the Lord, burning incense before the Lord along with them, and so fulfilled the temple obligations. King Solomon also built ships at Ezion-Geber, which is near Elath in Edom, on the shore of the Red Sea. And Hiram sent his men, sailors who knew the sea, to serve in the fleet with Solomon's men. They sailed to Ophir. And brought back 420 talents of gold, which they delivered to King Solomon. Now this chapter, although it's long, is an incredibly useful chapter for us. Because as we read it, it seems to be highlighting the busyness and the real goings-on of Solomon's heyday. The ins and outs of his building and his trading and, and just the euphoria around being blessed by God in such an incredible way. But the focus is not on that. Although it highlights the busyness of Solomon's days and um, the middle of his reign, the focus of this passage and the focus of the scripture is really on being consistent in the midst of busyness. It's really about keeping one's integrity and being honorable and making sure that your walk with the Lord is authentic, that you keep the authenticity of your love and your relationship with Jesus amidst the busyness and the achievements that one experiences as we walk with the Lord. That's really what God's heart is for Solomon, and it's his heart for us. And it's so important to receive this message today because I think we live in a world where busyness is valued as a virtue. High work ethic is praised and celebrated. And don't get me wrong, I think it is incredibly important to not be lazy, to work and to work hard for God. But Jesus says, I do only what I see my Father doing. And I think sometimes we can take busyness and make it a God. And we can mistake faithfulness for busyness. I'll say that again. I think we can really become so busy and in our busyness we think it's faithfulness. But busyness can be sometimes such a distraction from godliness. And because we're busy, we start to lose track. We take our finger off the pulse of our spirituality and we become so busy but less godly. Especially in the middle parts of our walk with the Lord where we may seem to be achieving a lot, where our relationship with God and the maturity we've experienced seems to set us up to be used by God more often and for greater things. Because we've got experience, there's maturity, there's knowledge, and there's a wealth of relationship we have with the body of Christ. And it seems that we've got into the flow, into the rhythm of things. We know the voice of the Lord. We understand how to pray and what heart we need in order to pray and to have God hear us and answer our prayers. But it's in that moment where we feel like we've just got things right and we feel like we can sit back and relax and survey the land where we need to be most careful because in all of our busyness, we can actually be missing the mark. So looking at this chapter, I think it's really clear that there are two main areas that God highlights for us by unpacking the life of Solomon in this season of his life. And the first thing is this, 
the internal wrestle and the heart issues we all have to overcome in that season of our walk with the Lord. It's important to see that it's only after Solomon had achieved all of this great building, only after he had become incredibly famous and established his kingdom that God comes to him for a second time. It's only after Solomon's able to sit back and just enjoy what he's done and to survey the land and appreciate all of it that God comes a second time. And we've got to ask ourselves the question, why? And the answer is because it's at that time that the human heart tends towards pride, selfishness, sinfulness, narcissism, and a sense in which we decide to honor and glorify ourselves for the accomplishments God has used us for, for his glory. It's generally at this point that the heart becomes corrupt. And nowadays, and again, don't get me wrong, I, I believe that the human heart has a potential to become corrupt and prideful and arrogant at any point. But it's normally exacerbated when we've accomplished great things for the Lord. The Lord has used us to do great things and we see incredible breakthrough in our ministry or in our disciple making uh, where we have gathered around us many people who we have led to the Lord and are discipling in the Lord. Where we begin to see great fruit, where we begin to see blessing in our lives as a result of walking with God. Where spiritually we seem to be incredibly strong, stronger than we've ever been. It's in those moments that our hearts tend towards pride. And God comes to remind you and I and he reminds Solomon here to pay attention to the fact that consistency, persistency and authenticity is important in those times. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28 to 31. Here's what it says about him. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. So we see the fall of King Nebuchadnezzar. No, he wasn't a godly man. But the same corruption dwells in our hearts if we're not careful and will consume us if we're not constantly consistent in our humility and our submission to Jesus. And this is what God wants to warn Solomon against. He wants to prevent Solomon from falling into this trap. And he wants to speak to you and I in the run, in the race, in the journey that we're on with God to pay attention to our hearts all the time and to not be building our kingdoms or to think that God has blessed us to build our kingdom. To build our kingdoms, to fabricate them and to, and to build them up how we see fit, but to build for the glory of his name. He comes to you and to I, he comes to Solomon to remind us to constantly check our hearts. He comes to remind us that it's all about him and his glory. He comes to keep us motivated. He comes to keep us from false teaching and false security, from drifting away into mediocrity and complacency. To remind us that we need to be consistent in our pursuit of him. And in our holiness, because God says, be holy as I'm holy. Be set apart. Don't become like the world. The sad reality is, though, the sad reality is that if you read on uh, in 1 Kings all the way through to chapter 11, you'll see that Solomon doesn't heed the warning of the Lord. You'll see that Solomon's heart and pride and the inner wrestle is something that he loses. And we see the downfall and destruction and demise of Solomon as he gives in to the inner battle. And all of this happens at a time when you think and would expect Solomon to have been incredibly spiritually rich and mature. The account of Solomon 
and God confronting Solomon really should be evidence to us that we are all vulnerable of this thing happening. We're all vulnerable of becoming complacent and mediocre in our faith if we take for granted what God is doing through us and we begin to think that it's all about us and our glory. We begin to think that for some reason we're so special that God uses us. And church, I believe God does love us. I believe we are special because he says we are. But if that turns around and becomes about us and our glory and we forget about God and somehow we think we deserve more than what God has given to us and we're more than who God says we are, where we want to usurp the throne of our lives basically and become our own kings and queens, we run the risk of falling off and being destroyed. And we're in a dangerous, dangerous place. As a people, as a church, as God's sons and daughters, to prevent this from happening, we need to be in prayer constantly. Humble, contrite prayer. We need to be in a place where we're in the word daily. We need to be in a place where we're putting to death our sinful desires daily. And desiring to be obedient to Jesus always. And this really is where the wrestle is. To be consistent in that. To encourage one another. To sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. To keep on and to persist and to pursue and to be consistent in our faith with Jesus. Looking at the example of Solomon is very clear that if it can happen to him, it can happen to us. The wisest of all men has ever lived gives into foolishness and lacks wisdom when it comes to the inner wrestle of his heart. There really is no time where we can ever let down our God and feel like we've made it or that we've arrived. But sadly, I think many Christians tend to forget that we're in a battle. But the enemy never does. The enemy is always strategizing. He's a master tactician desiring to steal, kill and destroy. And he's planning our demise. He desires to take us out of the race, whether it be through sinfulness or mediocrity. He desires to kill and to destroy to remove your love and to remove your, or to remove your love for the Lord and your integrity of faith. God desires to see you grow. The enemy to see, desires to see you trampled. If it happened to Solomon, it can most certainly happen to us. You know, one of, one of the books that I've read um, as, as a Christian is a book called The Screwtape Letters written by C.S. Lewis. So now it's a fictional book and the text is not going to come up on screen because there's a lot of it. But I wanted to read an extract from, from the Screwtape Letters, this book that C.S. Lewis wrote. And he wrote the book to help Christians understand sort of what was going on uh, in the spiritual realm, the dynamics that exist when it comes to our faith and how the enemy is trying to tempt us and steal, kill and destroy us, steal from us, destroy us and kill us. And it's this older demon, this uncle demon writing to a lesser demon, a, 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 a young demon, his nephew. And he's writing to him, trying to teach him how to tempt and to destroy a Christian. And this is what C.S. Lewis says. The older demon says to the younger one, you will say that these are very small sins. And, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And the enemy here he's referring to is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is not better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft and afoot without sudden things, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts and it's at this point in the relationship that he has with God that God comes to Solomon and warns him 
The enemy is subtly trying to draw you away with all your achievements and your accomplishments. There's pride that's setting in mediocrity with regards to your spirituality. You might be busy on the outside, but inwardly you're becoming lazy and lethargic spiritually. And the enemy wants to subtly come and draw us away from God. And church, we need to be on our guard against that. Because we can end up building our own kingdoms and forget that there's a king whose kingdom we should be building. If we're not aware, we'll be caught out. But then something else happens in this passage. God doesn't just speak about the inner wrestle. We don't, we don't just have highlighted for us the inner wrestle that Solomon is going through. There's actually some evidence, some physical evidence that what's going on the inside is not good. So at least the second point, what's on the inside is always going to come out. And, 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 and we see as a result of Solomon starting to lose the inner battle of integrity and consistency and holiness, there is some outward fruit to the heart. So we read on and just as we've seen in the middle years of Solomon's reign, there's this warning that comes from God. We're also, to, we're also invited to survey some of the things that he did, some of the kingdom affairs that were going on. And at first glance, it doesn't seem that there's any apparent issue. It seems very innocent. But like I said, what's recorded in verses 10 to 28 is more than just different types of daily tasks that we're invited to survey in the, uh, in the life and the reign of Solomon. They're also a, a, a record and evidence of really subtle and insidious ungodliness. It reveals insidious nature of sin and how Solomon began to show outward signs that he was slowly entering a season of demise in which it would ultimately, ultimately end up in him being destroyed. Verse 10 to 13, we look at deals with international relationships that Solomon had with Hiram, king of Tyre. Now, Hiram was not a godly king. He was an ungodly man. He was a pagan king. And it says this, at the end of 20 years, during which Solomon built these two buildings, the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, King Solomon gave 20 towns in Galilee to Hiram, king of Tyre, because Hiram had supplied him with all the cedar and juniper and gold he wanted. Hiram had sent to the king 120 talents of gold. So Hiram helped Solomon with building materials and expertise for his buildings. And Solomon and Hiram were in partnership. We're told that there was this mutual giving and receiving of gifts. It was this business partnership that exists. And at first glance, it seems really innocent. But what we're supposed to be paying attention to, however, is the fact that Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in Galilee. The worrying part about this isn't that Solomon is in a business relationship with an ungodly king, where Solomon seems to be the, uh, the stronger partner in what seems to be an astute business relationship. The most worrying part is that Solomon sold off parts of the promised land to an ungodly king. Solomon had begun to sell off land that belonged to his people. And outwardly, it looked like smart politics because the trade corridor in those days were controlled by Solomon and the king of Tyre, Hiram. And so to be in relationship with one another was mutually beneficial. And one might think 
that it was the king of Israel's prerogative to sell land to whomever he pleased. But the Lord had given that land to his people, not to one man to do with whatever he wanted. It's an ancient version of state capture, really, where Solomon started to sell off parts of the land that he was given to rule and started to sell off land that was given to the people that he was supposed to look care of or that he was supposed to take care of and look after for his own financial gain and well-being and political um, positioning. Solomon's spiritual complacency and pride was manifested outward in a lack of wisdom with with regards to his people and the responsibility he had with the land that God had given to his people as an inheritance. Solomon had now slipped into a place where it was evident that he was ruling for selfish gain and was making unwise decisions. In verse 15 to 19, tells us of tells us of Solomon's many building projects. I'm not going to read it all, but during those 20 years of building, Solomon built his own palace. He built terraces for Pharaoh's daughter. He built defensive walls around Jerusalem. He built the temple. And the projects of building included many other things, places for Pharaoh, places that Pharaoh had given him as a gift, fortifications along the trade routes. Solomon had built so much of this. He had amassed for himself a massive army with soldiers and horses and chariots and charioteers. And that's really what I want to focus on here, the fact that Solomon not only built all these other things, but had built for himself a massive army. And you might think to yourself, well, that's not such a bad idea because he had so much wealth he needed to protect it. It might seem very innocent on the outside, but the investment in military protection was not in keeping with God's command for God's people. The increase of chariots and horses was something forbidden by God. Instead, God's people were meant to trust him. David was the one who wrote, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. But I trust in the name of the Lord, my God. God is the one who said to his people, you need only to be still and I will fight for you when he led them out of Egypt. Yet Solomon is amassing to himself and for himself an army beyond measure. So that he can protect what he had now begun begun to value. Deuteronomy 17 verse 16 says the king Moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Given the size and scope of his empire, obviously Solomon wanted to protect his wealth because his wealth had now become his treasure. Another outward sign that he was slipping into this mediocre, complacent spiritual state. In those days, horses were a prime war material. They were a prime war possession, particularly for pulling chariots. And so amassing to yourself horses and chariots and charioteers was a clear sign of territorial aggression and a display of military might. It was a warlike spirit if a king started to, or a king possessed a warlike spirit when he started to amass to himself armies and warriors and he started to build fortifications in all the area that he ruled. But that's not the only problem. The thing that really displays Solomon's heart is not his love for his money and his wanting to protect it, but the fact that he lacked a trust and a faith in God to do that for him and for the people. They placed and he began to place great faith in his armies and his fortifications as opposed to the God who had fought for them and was fighting for them and had promised to fight for them. And also in verse 20 to 23, it clarifies that Solomon had used forced labor. The remaining Canaanites in the land had become his slaves. 
So apart from the fact that many projects had become a major tax burden on the people of Israel, the idea of slavery for riches was absolutely horrendous. And what would have been an occasional occurrence in those days, Solomon became absolutely consumed by it and he used slavery as a, in a very organized and, and economized way. And I just want to just sidebar here quickly. When, 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 when God's word records the use of slaves and slavery, and when Paul in the New Testament speaks about how slaves and masters should get along, just because, the God, just because God's word records something doesn't mean he condones it. And so God's word obviously speaks about slavery, and Paul speaks about how slaves and masters should get along. But God's word is not condoning a slavery. You must remember that the Bible is a book written over thousands of years. And throughout those years, God is progressively revealing himself to people, his holiness and his goodness. And we are on the other side of the cross where we realize slavery is horrendous. It was terrible, but it did exist in those days. And God gave to his people very specific instructions with regards to how they should treat slaves, how they should handle them. And if you were a slave to an Israelite person, you should have been the most well-looked-after slave of all. Eventually, slavery goes on to be abolished, obviously. God doesn't condone enslaving people. But God's people at that stage were being... uh, the veil was slowly being lifted for them as to the holiness and righteousness of God. And in a time where slaves were a reality, God's people were supposed to be looking after them in a way that other nations didn't look after their slaves. But what had happened here was Solomon had now uh, economized and on a regular basis began to abuse and use people as slaves for his personal gain and for his riches. And then interestingly, on the heels of the Canaanite workers who were slaves, there's this mention of a big wedding, a royal wedding, but not to a godly woman. It says that Solomon got married and there was a celebration of this marriage to Pharaoh's daughter, a pagan woman, a woman who didn't love the Lord. So Solomon's actions were evidence of a heart that was slipping away, fading integrity, fading glory, disappearing wisdom. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says, Do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship does light have with the darkness? And Solomon was unifying himself to an ungodly woman for political advancement. Possibly also because she was beautiful. And he was taken back by her physical beauty. But she certainly wasn't a woman who could offer him any spiritual insights or any depth of relationship with the Lord was with the Lord was devoid from her life. She could not have enriched his relationship with God. And Solomon had chosen to yoke himself together with someone who would have ultimately pulled him away. So while we see these things going on in Solomon's life, I also want to draw your attention to the fact that he was still going to church. Do not for one second think that Solomon was not a religious man. It says this, three times a year, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar he had built for the Lord, burning incense before the Lord along with them, and so fulfilled the temple obligations. So while all these things were going on, while Solomon had given in and was losing the inner battle, and while there was all manifesting outwardly in the decisions he was making, the things he was doing, he was still going to church. Once again, from the screw tape letters, listen to what the older demon says to the younger demon about 
a young Christian who's decided to make friends with ungodly people. The older demon says this to the younger one. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun and on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. For this reason, I'm almost glad to hear that he is still the churchgoer. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. See, church, when it comes to the middle of our road with the Lord, when it comes to having walked with the Lord for many years and we get into that place where we're comfortable and we feel like we're in the groove, the practice of religion can make us feel secure, can make us think that we're on the right track. But if religion is just religion, it is heartless. It's a heartless practice. And what should be the cure and the solution to the problem becomes a catalyst for more destruction. See, God doesn't want us to be going through the motions of church for the sake of going through the motions. We do what we do because we love God. We do what we do because we are saved and redeemed by a king who desires for us to be with him. And he set up different structures and practices for us to engage in that will enrich our relationship with him. But if we've come to a place of complacency in our life of the Lord like Solomon did, we'll slowly but surely start drifting inwardly and spiritually away from God. But keep the practices which keep us feeling secure, but actually become more dangerous for us. Because while we're doing those, we think we're good and we're right and we're okay with the law, but actually we've faded away. It's very interesting that Solomon kept his practices up. It was almost as if he was trying to justify his lifestyle and make it as if it was spiritual. And what's also hard for us to grasp is that sometimes, you know, people who are doing ungodly things are people who are being blessed. We see in Solomon's life, although he was internally drifting away from the Lord, he was prospering outwardly. Verse 26 to 28 talks about how Solomon received 420 talents of gold from King Hiram. Now, just to put that in perspective, I did some calculations. Um, Conservatively speaking, so they're not 100% sure of the exact amount, but I, I, I took the lower end of the spectrum. 420 talents of gold, roughly 12,600 kgs of gold. So 12 and a half tons of gold. I also Googled and had a look and a kg of gold is worth 836,000 rand, something like that. So when you do the math, which I needed a calculator for, Solomon here with 420 talents of gold. Nowadays, if you had that amount, it would equate to conservatively about 10 and a half billion rand. That's how much money he had and that's how much wealth he was amassing and had amassed that and all the other stuff that he had. And it was in that season where Solomon had started falling away from God. You see, we tend to look on the outside and the wealth and the blessing of a person and we think that determines their state and status and standing with God. But we've seen with the health, wealth and prosperity movement and these false prophets and these guys who teach teachings of demons, these so-called Christian churches where they make it all about us and our wealth and our health and our prosperity, that they are prospering. Materially, they are prospering. 
But spiritually, they're like the Pharisees that Jesus called out where he said, you are white on the outside, but dead on the inside. You're like whitewashed tombs. There's a facade of godliness and holiness. But inside there's death. And God calls us to be a people who are consistent in our faith, who are righteous in our actions and who are holy inwardly as opposed to outwardly. Encouragement for us in our walk with the Lord and when we reach this place, this middle ground, the long yards where it seems like we're on that straight road in the Karoo and there's nothing, there's no turn, there's no bend, it's just straight and there's hundreds of kilometers left and we've done a hundred kilometers behind us, hundreds of kilometers behind us. We're not at the beginning, we're not all excited, we're not at the end, we're not yet excited for the finish, we're in the middle. The exciting news and the good news is that we have the grace of God. Jesus is there. We have Jesus. We have his grace. We have his power. We have his faithfulness. And it is for us, church, to encourage each other to be daily in prayer. It's for us to encourage each other to be daily in the word. It's for us to encourage each other to be daily dying to self, to putting to bed and to death the sinful nature. It's for us to be daily seeking to be obedient to God, to be consistent and persistent in our faith and not to fall into the trap that Solomon did, where he began to think it was all about him and his kingdom, where it's actually always about the kingdom of God. We do this not to be saved, but because we are saved by a gracious and loving God. We do this not in our own strength, but in his. God's word says that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And it is by his strength that we do it. Paul wrote and he said, it is in my weakness that I boast, because in my weakness, his strength is made perfect. And so to conclude today, I want to ask you, how are you doing? Where are you at Have you taken stock of your life and considered all that God has used you to achieve? Are you in the beginning of a relationship with God where you're excited and full of zeal? Good. Stay there and remember that God has called you to a long road. Gather people around you to encourage you. But once you've walked with the Lord for years, you don't start to become complacent. Are you at the end? You believe you're at the end of your road with the Lord here on earth. You feel like you've got so much to give and you've navigated this space in between. Give out your wisdom. Give out your encouragement. Enrich the lives of people around you. Gather to you disciples that you can hand down to, to encourage them and to bolster them in their faith. If you're like me and you feel like you're somewhere in between and you're struggling with consistency, remember that God has called us to an internal commitment to him, which he'll strengthen us to fulfill. Let's guard ourselves and not be like Solomon who fell off and left the rails and ultimately crashed. Let us be sober-minded, repentant, humble. Let us guard ourselves from sin and commit ourselves to God. Let us be consistent in godliness all our lives long until the day we see Jesus. That's the call of God to us today through the Scriptures, church. May you be blessed and encouraged. If there's anything we can pray for, please get a hold of us at the church. The contact details on the screen below. Get hold of myself, one of any other pastors, and we'd love to pray for you and be in touch with you. Until then, bless you. Until next week, bless you. Look forward to being with you again. I trust that you'll have a wonderful day. Bye.